certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, defence continued to cast doubt over the DNA evidence, with Mr Jovic saying, without it, all the other planks fall away. Welcome to day 91 of Claremont in Conversation. You're with Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark, Alison Fan, and we're welcoming back leading criminal QC, Tom Percy. Thank you for being with us. So, My pleasure. Tom, we might start with you. It's still quite intriguing to us that Mr Jovic chose not to present evidence during the trial, but I guess we see now in closing we're hearing a really detailed attack on the prosecution theories and particularly the DNA evidence. Well, that's right. I, I wasn't surprised he didn't give evidence. As I think I've said before, nor was anyone in the profession. It's it's a fairly standard uh, way to deal with these matters. Uh, uh, and I think... If, if you really can't contribute anything to what happened, then why would you give evidence? Yeah. I mean, I guess, can you shed some light on maybe what would be the reasoning for maybe not calling um, the defence, calling their own independent DNA expert? Well, if you think that you've uh, created enough doubt on the prosecution case, and uh, old lawyers always told me when I was a young kid starting in this game, you find your answer in the prosecution case not by calling your own witnesses. And I think uh, Jovic just uh, thought that, and I'd imagine he probably had some uh, witnesses lined up, it can't get much better than this. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you only have to uh, be able to create a reasonable doubt about it and, uh, and you get off. And that's exactly today what um, Paul Jovic did. He pointed out repeatedly that the burden of proof is on the prosecution case, that uh, all they have to do is point out the areas of reasonable doubt. And he went very, very heavy on the DNA by going back to the path west and all their yes. flaws and mistakes. And he said, yeah, that the we don't deny that that DNA was on this fragment, this nano um, piece of uh, scraping, but it got there through contamination, through over the years of them taking out the samples, opening, closing them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that's where it happened. And he said, uh, "That's what we have to point out to you, um, Your Honour. Uh, look at the big picture." Yeah. So, Tim, right off the bat today, um, Mr. Jovic hits straight straight up with this cleaning regime at Pathwest, and and whether the results can really be trusted. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, and, and, we, and we heard a lot about that during the actual body of the evidence when Scott Egan from Pathwest was there um, and other, obviously other Pathwest witnesses as well. And he really honed in back on those 10 contamination events that he, he, he brought up and highlighted um, at length during the trial and then tried to paint a picture of sloppy workmanship, sloppy cleaning regimes and, and sloppy record keeping and pointing to all that and, and saying, well, Your Honour, it only takes one of these events to, uh, to have happened um, to potentially lead to an injustice. And uh, as we've discussed before, he hasn't come up with a scenario uh, or a timeline which could possibly have led to this contamination but as we've 
already said many, many times, he doesn't have to. And that is why Ms. Barbara Gallo spent a lot of time at the start of the week trying to discount this theory, this contamination theory, presenting a timeline that she says makes it impossible for that to have happened. So, yeah, we're really getting the... The, the flip side of the coin um, at the at the end of the week, where we got the, uh, with the got the shiny side of, at the start of the week. So, did Justice Hall ask for clarification on that? Because in the prosecution case, these ten contamination events, most of them were explained, were they not? Yeah, well, it, it explained, yes, um, not excused. I, I, I think that's fair to say. Nine of them uh, were d- direct. Um, staff member to exhibit contaminations. So all the staff members at Pathwest obviously had their DNA on on record um, for su- just such an occurrence. And when these were tested um, over the over the journey, right up to 2017, 2018, um, nine exhibits of various shapes and sizes were found to have staff member DNA on them. Four of those were, were Laurie Webb, who was in charge of, of the controls at the at the Pathwest at, at the time, and the the one the crucial one that the the, um, the prosecution started with um, in their counter counter um, arguments at the start of the week, and the one that Mr. Jovich ended with today was this cross contamination, case to case contamination, if you like, where this vegetation that was on Jane's body was said to have somehow got a, a victim's DNA from a completely unrelated case on it. And that was, I mean, and, and that's the one mm. that Justice Hall really honed in on today was saying, well, the, the, the nine with the staff members, they're explainable because they're either handling exhibits or in close contact to exhibits. But this, this 10th one, the one with the vegetation on, I think is the one that he will really turn his mind to the most in that that is the closest scenario to what the defence say may have happened to Kira's fingernails. Tom, how important do you think that that you know, 10th um, contamination case is? Well, I've always suspected that uh, there were problems down at uh, that laboratory for the best part of a decade. And uh, when uh, the Laurie Webb uh, matters came up, it only served to galvanise me and a number of members of the the profession uh, to the effect that, you know, you really need to look uh, very, very carefully at this. And I think the things that have emerged during this case may well result in recommendations coming from uh, the court, uh, from Justice Hall, about uh, how these things happen. I think there'll be some trenchant criticism about what happened. But whether or not uh, what uh, Jovic has been able to uh, piece together in terms of the contamination theory will ultimately impugn the DNA evidence that's the uh, axis of the prosecution case remains to be seen. I would have thought that there's a pretty good case uh, that there's been some critical contamination there at some level. Personally, I would not like to be convicted on the sort of evidence that's before this trial. Mm. Okay, and what about the point that Mr Jovic and the defence team aren't able to exactly point out how the contamination did take place? He doesn't have to do it, and that's effectively a reversal of the onus of proof. Mm. As a defence lawyer, which I am, it's always nice if you can say, look at this. This is how it got there. This is when it got there. But sometimes you're not in a position to do that. All you can really say is there's a big question mark about this. I can't resolve it. 
And that's what we call a reasonable doubt. Yeah, that's exactly what he kept saying over and over. We don't. This is the prosecution's strong point. It's there. The burden of proof is on them. And um, he said, look, there are instances where we realise in hindsight that uh, technology is advanced to the point where it looked almost primitive. Nobody wore face masks. People didn't have the sanitation levels that they've got today. They didn't know about cross-transference and all of that. But it happened and it's uh, a very dangerous area to convict and there's reasonable doubt that the um, contamination could have taken place there rather than, he said, during the fatal struggle between the victim and the perpetrator. And did he, um, did Mr Jovic say that there was doubt that there was a, a struggle? No. Well, he said it was that was one possible explanation for the for Kira's broken fingernail, of course, and he and he had to accept that. But uh, again, he said, "Your Honour, you've got to weigh you've got to weigh all that up." Um, I is is there any other explanation? And Mr. Jovic raised a couple today. Did she catch a nail on a on on the on the bar or on a glass at, at the at the Continental Hotel? There's no one to. There's no, you know, direct eyewitness to say I saw all ten of Kira's fingernails intact as she walked out of the Continental Hotel just before midnight on the night she died. Um, so again, it's a it's a. Their theories, and that's that's basically what we've had this mm. week is 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 numerous theories being being you know overlaid onto the onto the evidence that we've got. Justice yeah. Hall is being asked, "What is the most likely? What what or, or what is the most unlikely?" and can you be satisfied when you when you when you consider them all um, of guilt um, or innocence? I suppose. Uh, he did point out that there was no doubt of a, of a struggle pointing out the defensive wounds on her arms and, of course, the, the injuries that there was. But he said uh, that was one possibility where her nails, pointing out the fact that there were other defensive wounds, that there was indeed a, a struggle. Tim, Mr Jovich also talked about um, the passage of time and how mm. Mr Edwards was possibly disadvantaged by that what what did he mean yeah well we, we touched on that briefly yesterday and i'm sure tom will be able to speak to it with much more power and authority than me but this is the the concept that a, um, an accused person man or woman is put at a severe disadvantage the longer away from the uh, alleged crime uh, the accusation comes and in in, the, in this case and in, obviously that's more than 20 years and what Mr. Jovic pointed out this morning was um, the potential for an alibi um, on any of the nights of, of the alleged murders. But um, and he took Kira's and as, as a, an example um, is denied you because who could say where they were this time last year, let alone on the precise hour of of, of a precise day more than twenty five years ago. Um, and and that was his point that Mr. Edwards had been denied the possibility of to go back and look at uh, or, you know go back into his memory or go back um, to work diaries or whatever it might have existed at the time and look at that and say well look I can I can show you exactly where I was on March the fifteenth, nineteen ninety seven because I was I was here and I've got this person to to vouch for me or um, or, or, or this piece of um, this piece of uh, material to, to vouch for me, but he can't do that. And that's 
what we referred to yesterday, it's a Longman direction, which the judge, in, if there had been a jury, would have given the jury. But now he's he's got to give himself um, to remind himself of the of the uh, the tyranny of time, I suppose. Mm. Tom, in terms of the the passage of time. Would it be reasonable, and, and many people would ask, to say that the prosecution is equally disadvantaged by a passage of time? Well, uh, I think about 30 years ago, the High Court had a look at this question in a case called Longman and the Queen in relation to sexual assault. So when a historical allegation comes up, they rule that you have to uh, look at it from the defence perspective and just see, look, how could you possibly defend yourself about this? Quite often we don't know the dates in question in respect of which these things have happened. And unless you're an obsessive diarist, and I have to admit to being one myself, I can tell you exactly where I was on those nights in question. But uh, he probably couldn't. And it's a matter that a court needs to take into account and weigh into the equation, and the High Court has said that. Uh, there have, however, been other uh, decisions of courts which see the same is not the case for the prosecution. They bring the case... They say that you should find the person guilty. They say they can prove it. And uh, they've got to take that uh, consideration into account before they bring the charges. But it's not for the judge to say, oh, look at the poor prosecution. They're hamstrung by exactly the same things as the accused. That's something that only endures to the benefit of an accused person, not the prosecution. Right. Tim, am I right in seeing that today Mr Jovic um, added there was evidence that Mr Edwards was with his former girlfriend on the night that Kira died? Well, he suggested that that will be raised um, later on in his, his closing submissions, yes. Um, this is a, a, a lady that Mr Edwards had a relationship with um, in between meeting his first, uh, leaving his, or his first wife, leaving him and meeting his, his second wife. Um, and that wasn't, uh, from memory, it wasn't... Uh, so really explored at any great length uh, during the uh, during the um, evidence in chief um, and cross examination. But yeah, Mr. Yovic said he is going to point to that and uh, and point to that um, possibility uh, as well. So um, yeah, that's, that's that's something that will be of interest um, when we come back next week. Definitely. Yeah, uh, Tom. I guess this raises that question that we were talking about earlier: that um, if there is evidence that Mr. Edwards was with a former girlfriend, you know, us lay people think, well, why wasn't that presented during the trial? Well, you can't rely on it unless it's in evidence. But I think it may it may arise inferentially from the evidence produced by the prosecution. So, um, I think that's where. That's where they go with that. I hadn't understood that there was going to be any uh, alibi evidence uh, as part of the defence, but perhaps I've got the wrong stint on it. The judge actually said, I've got a lot of more questions for you um, and we're going to have a ponder over that. He asked a few of them to have a good think before we come back on Monday morning. So I think uh, Paul Jovic will probably be quizzed again. He hasn't been as quizzed as closely as Carmel Barbagato was yesterday, which did um, extend the length of time, but he just said to the end, I just want to clarify a few more points and um, we'll talk about that next week. So we wait to see what happens. It's very important for the judge to be able to isolate all the issues in his own mind and know where both respective sides are coming from so that he can adjudicate on the relevant issues uh, between the parties where the battle lines are drawn. It's important that he asks those sort of questions. He's He's not disparaging either counsel. He's simply saying, I need to know what you want me to find in this uh, regard and why. And and that's a normal way that uh, these things progress. 
Mm. Yeah, we've had lengthy chats about, you know, the questioning and the line of questioning from Justice Hall and how much we can read into that. I wouldn't read too much. <laughs> so it's been obviously quite a difficult week, Ali, for the various parties involved. Have the members of um, the families been quite stoic? They've been there every day still. I think they, they thought it was going to end this week. And of course, with all the questions that uh, Justice Hall is asking has lengthened the time for both um, parties. And yes, I think probably maybe Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. What's your best guess, Tim? Well, given that Mr Jovic um, let slip that he will be outlining some more of his points over coming days, um, plural, um, mm. I took that to mean that he doesn't <laughs> think he's going to finish on Monday. Um, but uh, again, I mean, it's there's, 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 there's a fairness involved. He can take as long as he wants. He can mm. And the judge isn't going to um, hold him to any any deadline or any um, any, any sort of account. Um, he's, given, he's, he's laid out his sort of roadmap for the, what the closings would uh, involve. And um, going f- back through that just uh, a short while ago, um, he's only on his first bullet point. So I think we've got, um, I think we've got a fair way to go yet. Yeah, Absolutely. Tom, many listeners have been asking us um, how long we think it will take for the judge to reach a verdict. Uh, what would be your best guess on that? Uh, you don't know, but I suspect he's been writing the judgment all along and... Uh, that most of it's already written. He's just uh, clarifying a few things and obviously listening and taking on board all the submissions that are made. But I think the formal parts of the judgment are already written. I would be surprised if we didn't get a decision within a month. Wow. Okay. That's um, that's interesting. I was sort of maybe thinking three months or... <laughs> but then that's uh, not over, is it, Tom? Because then he's got to hear submissions about the rape that the uh, yeah. accused well, has pleaded. Hmm. That's sad. That would be at the same time as any sentencing took place in relation to uh, in relation to any verdicts of guilt that he might bring in. So I don't think we need to worry about those ones. The question is, when's he going to bring in the verdict in relation to the murders? And I, I would think, look, it could be as early as two weeks. Wow. I would love to see the spreadsheet that he's working off. Yeah, well, it'd be enormous. Um, he's probably had to buy himself a new laptop just to get all this, this stuff on it, I would have thought. Um I mean, being an e-trial, uh, it's 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 been slightly easier for him because um, he's got and he's got associates to help him sort of research and look for sections of the transcript that he wants to pour over and and other you know little bits of evidence that he might want to um, to re uh, recap himself on. So um, yeah, so but uh, Justice Hall has also got a huge filing cabinet next to him as well. So mm. um, yeah, he's got all the uh, all the information at his uh, at his his fingertips and that's been uh, illustrated this week by him being able to apparently recall very detailed sections of the transcripts you know just just off the top of his head so um so yeah um I'm not as I'm not quite as optimistic as Tom I think it'll be a bit longer than that but uh, I don't I, I don't think he's going to want to um take you know too long for for everyone's sake yeah, I mean, either way, he must be burning the midnight oil um, studying. Sure. <laughs> Tom, just before you go, we have a question from Jay. As a listener to a lot of true crime podcasts, one thing I've heard a lot about is escalating behaviours in relation to violent crime, e.g. progression from voyeurism to sexual assault to rape to murder. I haven't heard this mentioned during this trial, but it seems to fit the case of the prosecution. If we consider Huntingdale, Hollywood, Caracatta, then Claremont, is this not admissible? as propensity evidence? 
Uh, I think Jade's been watching too much TV. <laughs> and, uh, I think that uh, that's not really what propensity evidence is all about. It's, it's an interesting theory that some criminologists have. If the prosecution had wanted to rely on that as being a, uh, a fundamental premise upon which the judge could act, then they would probably need to call an expert in that field mm. to say that they've looked at all these things and that in, in their view the behaviour of this person fitted a certain prototype, uh, that from that you can draw an inference that uh, there'd been an escalating scale of behaviour, that that was a, a very solid uh, thesis in criminology and as a branch of science. But I don't think any of it's gone that far. I think we can leave that to the CSI shows on TV. <laughs> yeah, I think you might be right. Well, thank you all very much for today and your time. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back Monday for week 24 of the trial, where Mr Jovic will continue his closing arguments. Join us then for day 92 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.